This is Kick-Ass News. I'm Ben Mathis. Today's episode is sponsored by Credible.com. Credible.com is an online marketplace for student loan refinancing. Using Credible's simple platform, it takes less than two minutes to find out if you're overpaying for your student loans. You could save thousands by refinancing. All you have to do is visit Credible.com kick, answer a few questions, and right away you'll get real rates, not ranges of rates, from multiple lenders. Checking your rates will not affect your credit score, so you really have nothing to lose. The average user who refinances through Credible.com saves almost $19,000 over the life of their loan. And for a limited time, my listeners will get a $200 welcome bonus when refinancing through Credible.com slash kick. That's Credible.com slash kick. And now, enjoy the podcast. Hi, I'm Ben Mathis. Welcome to Kick-Ass News. Tina Brown is arguably the most influential magazine editor of the past 50 years. In 1979, at age 25, she revived the British society magazine Tatler, turning it into a stylish, modern, glossy, and quadrupling magazine sales within just two years. Then in 1982, Condé Nast Publications bought Tatler, and Condé Nast owner Cy Newhouse lured Tina Brown to New York to revive the dusty dowager of a magazine, Vanity Fair. She quickly went about redesigning the whole magazine from back to front, luring clever writers like Dominic Dunn and publishing some of the most iconic pictures by photographers like Annie Leibovitz and Helmut Newton. Sales for the magazine quickly shot up from 200,000 magazines to 1.2 million under Tina Brown, and VF became synonymous with celebrity, high society, and an edginess all its own. Tina Brown later went on to perform a similarly dramatic turnaround at The New Yorker before turning the magazine world upside down by creating the digital publication The Daily Beast. However, Tina Brown still has a special place in her heart for Vanity Fair and the near decade she served as editor-in-chief. Now she reminisces about those years in a new book titled The Vanity Fair Diaries, 1983-1992. And today, Tina Brown joins me to tell stories of the glamorous and cutthroat magazine trade and some of the larger-than-life personalities she encountered in that world. She shares her first impressions of New York when she first arrived at Vanity Fair and how she received an education in Manhattan street smarts when she got conned out of $5,000 on her first apartment. She talks about how she got the gig at Vanity Fair, how she quickly revamped the magazine cover to cover, and the importance of what she calls the mix of a magazine. She recalls having a front row seat for the excess of New York in the 1980s, her first encounter with a young, boastful Donald Trump in those days, and later her nightmarish business partnership with disgraced movie mogul Harvey Weinstein. Plus, Tina Brown gives the backstory behind some of her favorite Vanity Fair covers, including her very first VF cover and the now iconic photo of a naked pregnant Demi Moore. Coming up with magazine queen Tina Brown in just a moment. Tina Brown has served as editor of Tatler, Vanity Fair, and The New Yorker between 1979 and 2001. Then she took magazines online, founding The Daily Beast in 2011. 
Queen Elizabeth honored her in 2000 as a commander of the Order of the British Empire, and in 2007 she was inducted into the U.S. Magazine Editor's Hall of Fame. More recently, she founded the Women in the World Summit in 2010 and launched Tina Brown Live Media to expand Women in the World internationally. Now she's written a new book that recalls her first years in New York and her transformation of Vanity Fair magazine when she served as editor for a decade. It's called The Vanity Fair Diaries, 1983 to 1992. Tina Brown, thanks for joining me. So happy to be here. It's wonderful to be in L.A. The Vanity Fair Diaries is literally a selection of your diary entries written at the time when you were running Vanity Fair. Do you think that lends a little more authenticity than looking back through the prism of history and trying to recall events for a memoir? Well, it's interesting. You know, when I began to to write this book, uh, I had originally thought I would write a memoir. But when I went back to the kind of spidery writing in those notebooks, which is was going to serve as the source for a memoir, I came to realize that there's something about the onrushing excitement of the present, something about the real-time, passionate uh experience through new eyes of a young woman arriving in New York for the first time that was actually very, very uh, seductive in a way. And I took the entries and I shaped them and I amplified them and I made them into a narrative, really, of uh, a young woman's journey. And I think uh, it's fun. I mean, there's no doubt about it. It's kept a freshness that uh, perhaps a memoir wouldn't have had. Now, when Cy Newhouse and Alex Liebman invited you to New York to discuss coming over to Vanity Fair... What were your first impressions of the city? I was blown away by the commercial, you know, uh, mercenary, exciting, hard-edged nature of New York. I mean, it felt like an electric pool to me. I mean, I came from London, uh, thought it was the capital of the world while I lived there, working as editor-in-chief of Tatler, which was a small magazine with a kind of young insurgent, young Turk staff. I arrive in New York and suddenly it is the big time with a vengeance. You know, this was a time when media was so uh, well-funded and and so affluent and so competitive. You know, if you were the editor of Time or Newsweek, you were a demigod with buildings called Time and buildings called Newsweek. (laughs) And Condé Nast, uh, where I went to work as editor of Vanity Fair, seemed like like, uh, just a a huge corporation to me full of... uh, you know, people and glamour and power. And I was blown away, really, by the whole experience. The magazine industry in the UK was certainly a different experience than coming to New York. I think you said in the book that you didn't realize until then what a small pond you'd been in before. Right, it felt like a small pond, even though, of course, Fleet Street was thriving at that time and newspapers were thriving in London at that time. And and it was a rich media culture in London, but nothing like at the scale or or the affluence of New York. Yeah, and you had something of an education in New York street smarts when you first arrived. In fact, you got conned out of $5,000, you said, when you rented your first apartment. That must have been a pretty shabby welcome. Oh, God, it was. I was so, you know, I I was so dumb, I realized, so naive. You know, that this was, I, I, I try to go and rent my first apartment. I meet this real estate agent who says, sure, meet me there. And then he says to me, you know, we need a big, a big uh, deposit. We need a $5,000 deposit. Uh, you have to give me cash. So I thought, that's a strange thing. But I went off to, to the local you know, ATM, I got the cash, came back, and uh, he said, you have to count it out. And he put out his pork pie hat, and I, and I <laughs> counted the cash out into his hat. Thank you very much, he said. We'll talk again tomorrow about the lease. Disappeared. Never saw from him. Yeah, <laughs> Never I saw think, him ever again. I don't think I would ever trust a realtor in a pork pie hat to begin with. <laughs> well, thank you. But you were, you were much savvier than I was at the time. Uh, I don't know about that. But <laughs> um, you weren't immediately given the job as editor at Vanity Fair. You had to sort of bide your time for a bit and then make your big move. 
What did you learn about timing from that experience? Well, at first I was brought in as a consultant when they had, because they'd been, Vanity Fair launched with great fanfare in 1983, came back from the dead when it was a big magazine, of course, in the 30s. Conny Nast decided they wanted to bring it back and make it into this big glittering show pony of a magazine. Unfortunately, the first two editors they had in eight months were a catastrophe. And I was really brought in to sort of try to kind of band-aid the second editor, uh, who was an elderly gentleman called Leo Lerman, who used to be at Vogue. To me, age 30, he, he was 73 or something. He seemed as if he was 199. I mean, I, I you know, I was such a sort of, you know, young Turk. You know, I just thought, what is this guy? He knows nothing. And I realized that he just didn't really know what to do with this magazine. It was becoming, it was very old-fashioned. It was very sort of what I call a New Yorker wannabe magazine. And I thought, this magazine needs to be on the front edge of culture. It needs to be discovering what is happening out there in the world, you know, before anybody's even heard of it. And it's yet, it's really retro. So after my consultancy, I went back to London. Um, They had made overtures to me to sort of try to get me to stay. But I was actually very determined not to do anything but the editorship. I decided... This is a mess. I don't want to be tarred with this mess. I'm going back to London. If they want me to be the editor, they'll ask me. And I jumped on a plane and went back to London, which in retrospect is kind of cocky, actually. I mean, I'm surprised (laughs) I was that self-confident. But I think when you're young, you have a kind of bravado. Maybe you don't have Mm -hmm. when you realize that life's harder. I sat in England for four months thinking to myself, I've blown it. You know, I've, I've actually blown it. I should have stayed. I should have hung out. I ran away. I wimped. I choked. And then I got the call just, uh, end of the year in December 83 I was on my way to Barbados with my husband on a vacation and I got this call would I come to New York for lunch I of course immediately said yes even though it meant flying from Barbados with just a a suitcase full of bikinis (laughs) to have the big job interview had the big job interview with Newhouse and uh, Lieberman they offered me the job and I couldn't believe it that I was actually going to start the job. They said, the only thing is you have to start right after Christmas. You have to come back and start right away. The magazine's going to fold if you don't have, we don't get this editor out. Wow. So I came back to New York, uh, still with my holiday clothes. And I never went back to England again for three years. I mean, it was like <laughs> I, my husband went back to England, shut up the house, rented it out. You know, he was amazingly supportive. He went off then to teach for a bit in, in uh, at Duke University while he kind of, uh, you know, organized his own life. But he was great about saying, you must jump, you must do this. Many husbands wouldn't. Many would have said, hey, wait a minute, we live in London, you know. <laughs> but I didn't have kids at the time. And uh, that makes you courageous. You know, it was yeah. a big chance and I took it. Yeah, and your husband, Harry, was an editor as well at Condé Nast Travel and at Random House, I believe. What is a marriage between two editors like? Are you just constantly looking over each other's shoulder and giving critiques? Well, of course, Harry was uh, 25 years older than me, Mm -hmm. and he was really London's most celebrated uh, newspaper editor. So I would used to very much being in his shadow. Then we came to New York, and... You know, I became editor of Vanity Fair. He eventually took over uh, and started, actually. He, he launched Condé Nast Traveler and then took over at Random House. So we've always lived for journalism. I would say that journalism is our drug of choice. You know, that is what is our big bond. You know, we're passionate uh, consumers of news. He's an amazing newsman, newspaper man himself, just the best and one of the best in the business. And I learned so much from him because, you know, he could teach me everything that he knew and I absorbed it. But, you know, we've, we, we, we love our work, and it is our passion, and we've had a great marriage for the last 35 years. Yeah. Well, when you were finally given the reins at VF, what was your first order of business there? Well, my first order of business was I thought this magazine is a visual mess for a start. 
I have to get in there and redesign it. It was a big clutter of typefaces that were all competing with each other. I wanted to do something that was clean and strong and would let photography really breathe. So the first weekend that I was there in January, you know, we were up against the clock. My first issue was going to be the April issue, which uh, the deadline of which was, you know, the end of February, beginning of March. So I got in there over a long weekend with the art director and I literally redesigned the magazine uh, front to back. I mean, Contents page, back page, structure of the magazine, front of book, back of book, made a whole different structure to the magazine, which is really the magazine that you see today. That's mm-hmm. really what we did yeah. on that long weekend, incredibly, is what you see today, really. And then I thought, I've got to get some fantastic photographs. I know there are some here. And I knew that some photographers had already been sort of hired but weren't being used. And I ransacked the drawers in the art department. <laughs> and lo and behold, what did I find? I found a fantastic portfolio by Annie Leibovitz of comedians oh, wow. that she had photographed. Yeah. Uh you know, Whoopi Goldberg in a bath of, of milk, which turned out, of course, to be an iconic yeah. photograph. Yeah. Uh, Pee Wee Herman, uh, uh, you know, all of these wonderful comics of the time. And I thought, my God, it's the April issue. We'll call this April Fools and I will run this as a portfolio. Just boom, you know, a fanta- and we did. And it was a wonderful series of pictures that were just so celebrated in years to come. They've, they've been in many, many books. So that was one of my first sort of moments of realizing that, there was so much visual gold to be made. And, and we hired um, Helmut Newton, of course, who's one of the great photographers oh, yeah. at the time. He was doing fashion primarily for Vogue. And I gave him sort of journalistic assignments, which turned gave him a new direction and teamed him with the writer that I also discovered, Dominic Dunn, uh, to, uh, to do great sort of social stories together. And together they did the very famous story about uh, the murderer, accused murderer Klaus von Bülow. Uh, with Helmut taking the pictures and, and Nick writing the, the great story of the trial uh, of, of Von Bülow, which eventually became a movie starring Jeremy Irons. And uh, Klaus had a great brainwave. He said, because he's a fashion photographer and was a very sort of stylish guy, he said to Klaus, um, open your closet and let me see what we could, you know, what you could wear for the photo shoot. <laughs> and he spies this black leather outfit in there and he says to Klaus, what about this? So Klaus amazingly puts on the, the, the black leather outfit and of course, you know, when an accused murderer stands there wearing black leather, it, it, it's a bit <laughs> it of a statement. A you yeah. know, so I don't think his uh, lawyer was very happy about it, but those pictures went everywhere. Yeah, I mean, so many iconic pictures came out of Vanity Fair. And, and the ones you were just talking about by Annie Leibovitz, how long have those been just sitting in a drawer? Just been sitting there for months. And then, of course, Annie and I went on for over the years to create some iconic pages. Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, her covers were absolutely great. One of her, of course, the most famous was her pictures of Demi Moore, stuck yeah. naked and pregnant. And that What's came the about. Story there? Yeah, it came about because, you know, I I had just had my second baby and had spent a year kind of cursing the fact I had to wear maternity clothes, which even sounds dated now. I mean, you remember those maternity clothes, big smocks, <laughs> big, yeah. you know, that's yes, what we used to wear exactly. when we were pregnant. <laughs> Nobody wanted to show the bulge. And we heard that Demi was pregnant and we were I said, why don't we just show the stomach instead of always hiding the stomach let's just show the stomach great thing about annie is she always goes one better than you she came <laughs> back everything. not just with a stomach <laughs> in a clothing which is what i thought it was a stomach stark naked with 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 demi stark naked and as soon as i saw that picture i went berserk i said this is so amazing this is fabulous this is a whole fresh new way women can show themselves you know so uh, we had to persuade Demi, and um, Demi was really, uh, really very brave herself. I mean, mm-hmm. she she went with it, and which I kudos to Demi. 
the Walmart, which who, who uh, we had to tell, we had a naked pregnant cover this month, went ballistic <laughs> and said we could not possibly use it. So we had to shrink wrap it like a porn magazine, which, of course, only God. added to its appeal. Oh, yeah. And I remember the night before we published the Demi Moore cover, I said to our, our PR person, I said, I wonder whether we can get this cover on the Today Show. <laughs> and, oh, my God, you know, that, that cover went on every show. Yeah. It led the news. It was every article. It was every front page. It was, you know, there were polls about should we have done it or not. And it was absolutely amazing. And, of course, since then, 25 years later, uh, so many movie stars have done the same shot. Yeah. I mean, and even just recently, Vanity Fair did Serena Williams in the same mm-hmm. Demi Moore pose. It's become a rite of passage oh, to yeah. do your Demi Moore pregnant cover. <laughs> How many copies do you think that issue sold? Well, interestingly, it did sell a great many. We, at the time, were selling 800,000 on the newsstand, and we took it up to 1.2 million with that cover, and it has stayed there ever since. Wow. And one of the things, of course, that was different then uh, is that a really explosive cover like that would actually move units. You know, Mm -hmm. it would sell magazines. Yeah. Today, if you have a cover like that, it goes up online. Everybody sees it. Yeah, and nobody still buys the magazine. And it's yeah. really, it was a very big difference. Recently, Vanity Fair did the brilliant cover of Caitlyn Jenner, you know, when mm-hmm. she had the uh, transgender cover. And yet, even though it went all over the world, it didn't move the units because people just yeah. saw the picture and that was what they needed to see. Which must be tragic for you on some level because you talk about being such a lover of books and magazines and how you collect magazines, how you get excited when you walk in a home and there's stacks of books there. Yeah, I do. And I'm still, you know, a passionate print person, but, you know, magazines are very challenged now indeed. Mm -hmm. And I think that magazines can only really continue to exist if they are very high quality and build a kind of ecosystem around themselves Mm -hmm. of, you know, podcasts and TV and other things because alone a magazine is very, has a hard time surviving. Uh, I was interested to read in the book about how when you came in, you and your team reworked what you called the mix of Vanity Fair. How important is the mix of a magazine? The mix is critical. I mean, if if I'm anything, I'm a mixologist, you know, because <laughs> I believe that it's not simply a magazine isn't just a collection of articles with a staple through it. You know, you can have six great articles that don't make a great magazine, oddly. Uh, it's really all about the energy that's created by the juxtaposition of, of things. And so Vanity Fair, the mix as we came to see it, began to evolve as something that we could do every month. And that that mix really was a dazzling celebrity cover, which would move the copies and bring that glamour immediately. Then a terrific narrative, political narrative, crime story, something that had a really gritty, uh, newsy flavor to it. Then a cultural piece, perhaps a piece about an author, a piece about an artist that would kind of be the sort of elevating thing. Then perhaps a personal essay that talked about somebody's personal experience. And then, you know, an amazing high style portfolio that showed the way somebody lived or or a fashion piece. It was all about that combination of things Mm -hmm. and issues which didn't have those elements but had one too many of the other kind or, you know, it just didn't have the same feeling. So there Mm -hmm. were sort of perfect magazines that we put out where you knew this issue has got it. And then there were others where you think, well, this issue has got good stuff in it. It's not as great a magazine as June or the next (laughs) issue, you know, to come. Did you have any kind of, uh, I guess, an elevator pitch or what you would say encapsulated the Vanity Fair of Tina Brown? Well, it's interesting. Actually, one of the problems we had was that it was such a combination of things that one elevator pitch was difficult and that's what made it hard to get advertising at the beginning they would say but wait a minute is this a celebrity magazine is it a 
a fashion magazine? Is it a, a, a literary magazine? Is it a political magazine? There was a puzzlement on the part of advertisers to say, huh. how do we categorize it? Which, of course, the answer is yes to all of those things, <laughs> that it was that combination. I mean, the Vanity Fair is is is, is, is just a, a fantastic high-low package. And, and it's it's the all-you-can-eat uh, cultural buffet of, of you know, what's happening in the world. Uh, did you see any other magazine out there as a chief rival or occupying the territory that you wanted to stake out for VF? I really thought that you know, we occupied a unique place mm. and that because of that, we sort of competed with everybody. We competed with the New York Times. We competed with New York Magazine. We competed with Rolling Stone. We competed with W in some ways. So we competed with everybody. We wanted to be first. We wanted to be the, the best. And we wanted to be the most exciting. Well, the cover of your first issue has this amazing photograph of Daryl Hannah, and the headline was Blonde Ambition. And in some subtle or maybe even not subtle way, was that your way of announcing yourself at Vanity Fair? Yeah, it was a sort of a wink at the readers. It was <laughs> it was a multiple wink. First of all, it was a wink at the readers about me. But it was also a wink at the readers because we had Daryl Hannah there blindfold like the blind justice, you know, and it was about here's the magazine in the balance. And it was also like a wink at the Oscars because, you know, she's holding the two Oscars in either hand instead of the scales of justice. So it was a it was a Helmut Newton special, which had many levels of, in, of, of interpretation. Yeah. And now Vanity Fair has become so associated with the Oscars. The Oscar issue is Perhaps the biggest issue each yes, year, I yes, imagine. Yes, yes. Vanity Fair owns the yeah. Oscars at this point. <laughs> <laughs> now, I imagine when you arrived there, you probably had to come in with a good deal of confidence to lead the turnaround at VF and squelch dissent in the ranks or any doubts about you. But were there some humbling moments or lessons learned in that first year or two? There were many lessons learned. I mean, uh, you know, I was a newcomer and I didn't know a lot of people there and I would sometimes reject a piece by some big name. I remember I rejected a piece by the great ballet man who invented the sort of New York City ballet, uh, Lincoln Kirstein, his name was. I just like blithely like just said, Oh, this is no good. I just sent it back. I mean, the instant was right, it wasn't very good, but the way I handled it was pretty bad. And he yeah. made a bad enemy out of the guy. And I actually walked into oh. a dinner party, uh, and there I found he was my dinner partner. And he took one look at me and <laughs> threw his nose in the air and headed for the elevator. <laughs> Vanity Fair has become synonymous with parties now, and you talk a lot about all the dinner parties you went to in this book. Uh, do you enjoy that life? You know, I always went as a consumer of material. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's really what had me in a, in a long dress and, and hitting the scene. <laughs> I saw the dinner parties as the place to go hunting for stories, for leads, for uh, information, for uh, early early sound of what was going on. So for me, the scene was something that I was always there as an observer. And I think in the diaries, the fun of the diaries is just sort of what I was really thinking a lot of the time during these dinner parties, which was pretty irreverent, but also how often the dinner parties might lead to very good stuff. For instance, one story talks about how I met a black tie benefit for uh, which was actually a, an event for suicide survivors. It was a fundraiser. And in fact, it was, I was invited by Anna Winter because her husband was a psychiatrist and he worked with survivors of suicide. So they invited me to join their table. And during the evening, one person got up, the writer, famous writer, novelist, William Styron, who wrote Sophie's Choice. He got up and made this very moving speech about how he had suffered from depression and how uh, he'd once tried to commit suicide. So I went up to him afterwards and I said to him, Mr. Styron, would you ever write that as, as a piece? And he said he'd think about it. The next day he called, he agreed to write the piece, and it became 
a most astonishing essay in Vanity Fair called Darkness Visible, which was a title I gave it from a poem, actually, which for me defined what depression felt like, darkness visible. And Bill Starin wrote the piece. It went it had such a huge impact. I mean, 60 Minutes did a big piece out of it. It was uh, had such a, 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 a tremendous reverberation in the culture about the meaning of depression. And I think it was very helpful to many people who had kept such a secret about the fact, the way they felt. And he went on to write, turn it into a book which became a bestseller. So that was an example really of how being editor of Vanity Fair allowed me to take an evening like that and turn it into something that became uh, quite remarkable in, in in the history of the magazine and also in the culture. And as the editor of the magazine of record for New York in the 1980s, you had invites to all of these parties and a front row seat to the excess of the gilded 80s. Uh, describe those days for us in New York. What was that like? Well, it was a really remarkable time because it was so kind of hectically social in a way that it isn't anymore. I mean, people gave black tie dinners in their own homes, which just, <laughs> I mean, I I think I gave a black tie dinner in my home, which is, I can hardly imagine I would ever do such a thing except as a joke. Uh, but I did. And that's the way it was. Red nails, you know, the whole poof dress phenomenon. And uh, uh, there was a, a hostess there called Alice Mason. She's a realtor. And she used to give these dinners where everybody used to go. And there were all of these billionaires would go, you know, the famous people, you know, from Trump to, to uh, you know, to um, uh, Saul Steinberg and Carl Icahn, who's now part of the Donald Trump's world. In fact, many of the right. people in on the scene now are these throwbacks to the 80s. So that you see, in a sense, today how the 80s has resurfaced and is almost sort of being relived in some strange... You know, <laughs> That's an interesting Depending on how you feel about him, I suppose yeah. it's either a fantasy or a nightmare. What was Donald Trump like back then? Your paths must have crossed a right, lot. They crossed a the lot. 80s. He comes into the, into the diaries a lot. Mm -hmm. uh, well, I first meet him at a dinner party where he's... I just extracted for the magazine The Art of the Deal. And I bought it for the magazine... Because I liked his voice, actually. I said, this is authentic BS, yeah. is what I said. I said, it's authentic <laughs> BS because, you know, it's it's a kind of entertaining con man and you feel your nose to nose with this con man and it, it, yet it's real. It feels real. Mm -hmm. So I liked the book and I took an extract of it. And as a result, you know, he was very friendly to me. So we were at this dinner and we were had two or three people in between us, but he talked over their heads to me because... Our dinner partners weren't talking to us. So he was like shouting across to me, hey, Tina, you know, like uh, I'm in the cover of Newsweek uh, this week. You know, it's like, uh, what do you think? Uh, what's better, Time or Newsweek? So I said, well, actually, I think Time is better. He went, well, but I could have had Time as well. I could have had Time. Uh, you know, it's sold more copies than anybody's ever seen. You know, uh, and it was like this, you know, he was like that. Yeah. And I, and I, but I thought he was funny and I thought he was brash and, and amusing. As time went by, he got less funny to us because yeah. he got very angry whenever we published pieces he didn't like. Yeah. Very much true to form today. And Marie Brenner did a very uh, famous piece on him, which was very revealing and and described how he had Hitler's speeches on his desk and how his brother said that he oh was. I know, and said that he was. His brother said that he was the boy who threw cake at the birthday party. He did not <laughs> like this piece, as you can imagine, and he got his revenge by. Uh, and, and, and emptying a glass of wine down Marie Brenner's dress when they were yeah. at a, a, a benefit one evening. So he hasn't changed a yeah. lot. As you just said a moment ago in the book, uh, I have a quote here. You say that he's an entertaining con man, and the rest of that statement was, and I suspect the American public would like nothing better. Looking back, could you have imagined him in the White House? Well, I certainly uh, was prescient at that moment because I did see his appeal 
Not at that, no. I mean, never in the sense that there was a gravitas then to being president that, that right. meant that the idea that Donald Trump could have sent to that Oval Office would be, it was just inconceivable to any of us then. But, you know, time moves very fast. And in many ways, you know, the Vanity Fair star at Diaries begins just as Ronald Reagan begins, you know, he's on a glide path to re-election at the time I arrive. Mm -hmm. We had an actor in the White House and the sort of uh, natural arc of that whole start of, of the, the uh, you know, of the celebrity culture, if you like, has now reached its apotheosis with, with Trump in the White House as a reality star. So it's a kind of fascinating thing to see in the diaries, how that culture takes hold and how it plays out and how we get yeah. to the place now where Trump is president. Well, yeah, and Vanity Fair played a big part in feeding that celebrity culture. Uh, do you have any quiet regrets about that, looking at who's in the White House? No, I don't, because, you know, Vanity Fair was a magazine that reflected uh, and explained and, uh, you know, revealed the age of which it was a part. I mean, as time went by, Vanity Fair evolved. We became a deeper more serious magazine as the years went by. We published very meaningful, you know, p political and narrative pieces by many great writers, particularly on uh, foreign affairs. And so I don't really feel anything except that we did a really good job of, of covering it, mm -hmm. frankly. And uh, I think a magazine always has to be out there on the front lines of culture, describing what is coming down, what's about to come down, and what has been happening before your eyes. The other thing that helped fuel the Trump presidency was, of course, Fox News and Rupert Murdoch. Your husband uh, was no fan of Rupert Murdoch, having dealt with him. Have Harry and Rupert ever made up or buried the hatchet by now? Well, you know, actually, you know, again, in the diaries, Rupert sort of surfaces like a virus. <laughs> throughout the, uh, actually, they're on pretty good terms. Yeah. Um, my husband, in fact, admired what Rupert did uh, to break uh, a, a huge kind of uh, union deadlock in, in London, and uh, which had constantly made his newspaper go on strike. So he has an admiration for, for Rupert as a strategist. But, um, you know, he's also, uh, Fox News has, has, has redefined our culture in ways that uh, Harry as a newsman obviously finds difficult to mm. relate to, frankly. Now, after your time at Vanity Fair and The New Yorker, you became editor-in-chief at Talk Magazine, which was, of course, Harvey Weinstein's brief sojourn into publishing. Were you at all surprised by the allegations that came out about him recently? Well, after, after Vanity Fair, I went to The New Yorker. I had an amazing seven years and left The New Yorker because I thought I wanted to have a magazine that would also be able to uh, create books, movies, and other kinds of media. Okay. So I was actually sort of ahead of my time on that. Yeah. At the time I left, Harvey Weinstein was producing some very amazing films. You know, he had just right. done The English Patient. He'd done uh, uh, Shakespeare in Love. He'd done uh, My Left Foot, My Beautiful Laundrette. Pretty much every movie that I loved had been done by Harvey Weinstein. So when he came to me and said, I want to do a magazine that does movies and books, and it was exactly what I had been thinking about doing. And I thought that he would be a great entrepreneur partner to uh, a rough diamond, perhaps, yes, but one who could get things moving. Uh, I was completely shocked, obviously, by what we've seen in the revelations recently. He was, it didn't, his personality, however, was very abusive and, 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 uh, and very, very difficult to work with. I mean, in, in many ways, and he was very secretive. That's the thing that really, really? I noticed, very secretive, which very surprised me. He was very, very deeply paranoid man. I kind of understand now what he was paranoid about. I didn't, which was being caught, right? So I didn't realize <laughs> that at the time, why he was so paranoid, but he was okay. always obsessed with what the press was saying about him. Hmm. 
Uh, he always had a refrain to me, which was, did they want to know about my social life? I used to think, why is Harvey always asking about his social life? I now understand he actually meant his sexual life. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, it, it didn't really, but, but it was a shocking thing to read how, how bad it had got. You had had great working relationships with Alex Liebman and Cy over at Condé Nast. What was the working relationship with Harvey Weinstein like? Well, I mean, it was, you know, obviously Alex and Cy were always just wonderful collaborators, incredibly, you know, elegant people to deal with. And there was never any question of anything, you know, untoward with them. To go to work for Harvey after that was a brutal awakening, I have to say. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was it was it was a brutal scene over, over there, uh, really? very aggressive and, and very profane and very, you know, coming on. He, he would think nothing of coming on the speakerphone and you know, bawling me out in front of my entire team and, you know, really? this kind of stuff. He was very, very difficult to work with. Uh, yeah. I mean, it sounds like a, a, a terrible example of leadership to hire someone who is an expert and at the top of their field to go and do something you have no experience with whatsoever and then try to tell them how to do their job. Well, thank you for saying that. <laughs> That's kind of how I felt. But anyway, I survived. Yeah. Whatever, you know, what doesn't uh, what doesn't kill you makes yeah. you stronger, as they say. <laughs> yeah. And then after that, you, of course, started The Daily Beast. Yes, which which, a, which took was, a magazines online. Which was such a joyful experience. I mean, as as difficult as talk was, although I certainly put out a great magazine, I believe, and, and had a fabulous staff with me. Yeah. The Daily Beast was just a really joyful experience because it reminded me really of my days at Tatler in London when mm-hmm. I had just a bunch of kids who were extremely talented and nothing to lose. And we just went out putting out something that was just a daily response in a way that was clever and fun. And we created a very successful online oh, yeah. uh, site, uh, a news site, which you know won Best News Site of the Year Award two years running with the Webby Awards and uh, is still going strong. So that was a very exciting sort of, uh, you know, uh, second act, if you like, in yeah. digital journalism. Yeah, and as someone who was part of bringing magazines online and then eventually, of course, the Daily Beast absorbed Newsweek and took Newsweek yeah, off stands and exclusively that online was not later great, on. That was not but, such a great idea. Because really, actually oh, you in think the end, so? That's interesting. Well, I think that in the end, the Daily Beast was a stronger brand by that point. You know, I mean, Newsweek really? was in a way and it's kind of it was in its last throes and mm. the Daily Beast was this insurgent brand you know a young brand and some ways uh we should have stayed that way and and in a way that's what happened i mean you know the Mm -hmm. daily beast you know survived and and newsweek then went off and uh, and was spun off into something different well as a magazine romantic is there any part of you that has certain pangs of sadness about being a part of the digital revolution and the the waning of paper magazines by the time i went to the daily beast i Mm. had really transitioned into the digital you know oh, I, yeah. I am now a you digital with both feet yeah i did i'm now a sort of digital junkie like everybody else yeah. i read most news on my phone and uh don't read a lot of print now i have to mm. say i have become fully a fully evolved you know digital <laughs> junkie like everybody else um i always miss the artifact of magazines the beauty mm. of beautiful pictures uh glossy paper you know lavish headlines. I mean, there's something very lovely indeed about print. And I love print books. I'm not, I'm not actually a, uh, I don't read my books uh, on Kindle, as a matter of fact. I mean, I have Kindle, but I I prefer the hardback book and I always will, I think. Well, they say that millennials now are gravitating back toward that because if they're going to buy music or a book, they want to have something that they can put on their shelves to show off. I think there may well be that the digital native generation does gravitate back to print mm-hmm. because it has a vintage cool to it. 
Yeah. You know, that there's, when, yeah. When, when all you've done is have digital, there's something very beautiful and very new about yeah. having an artifact uh, like a book, which is forever. Yeah, and I, I just like the idea of having a book that I can pass on to someone yeah. uh, eventually, whether it's grandchildren one day or a friend. Yeah. It's just to look it's up a and different see, experience. And to see your books on the shelf like old friends. Yeah. I mean, I, yeah. whenever I've finished a book, I always want to make sure I never leave it anywhere. I put yeah. it, come back, goes onto my shelf, and there it is. It's an old friend yeah. that I can return to. And speaking of old friends, what are a few of your favorite Vanity Fair covers from your era there? Oh, I loved, well, obviously Demi Moore was was one of the great ones. I love that first Daryl Hannah, which just has a shimmer even to this day. I love some of the male covers, actually. We did some wonderful covers of Jack Nicholson in a lemon shirt pushing up the shades of uh, his (laughs) glasses, which had such a kind of impish thing. We did a wonderful Kevin Costner cover that, that Helmut Newton did with his tie hanging off, looking like the ultimate very stylish kind of Bogart-like bad boy, which was a wonderful cover. Um, we did a great Cher cover, uh, wonderful Madonna cover. You know, there's so many of them are, are really iconic today. Yeah. Now, former Time editor Radhika Jones has just recently been named editor-in-chief at Vanity Fair. What kind of advice would you give to her? Well, for a start, follow her own instincts mm-hmm. and not feel cowed or sort of intimidated by the past. While at the same time, doing really what I did at The New Yorker, uh, which is uh, uh, being very cognizant and very deep, steeped in the DNA of the magazine as it is. So you want to understand the DNA of the magazine, all that's best about Vanity Fair, while bringing a new pair of eyes and a new spin to it. I think I think it probably needs to become less of a hostage to Hollywood, which has become a very... Interesting. It's not, you know, by any means the only world that Vanity Fair needs to, to shine in. You know, it, it, it's become, there are other worlds out there to conquer and look at. And I think the important thing is to understand the coverage of the other, you know, to mm. actually allow readers to come in and learn about new worlds. And I'm hoping that Radhika really sort of moves it out of its current Hollywood only mm-hmm. um, uh, sort of obsession. Good advice. Well, once again, Tina Brown's book is called The Vanity Fair Diaries, 1983 to 1992. Tina, thanks for talking with me. So much enjoyed it. Thank, Thank you. you. Thanks again to Tina Brown for coming on the podcast. Order her new book, The Vanity Fair Diaries, 1983 to 1992 on Amazon or download the audiobook read by Tina herself at audible.com. Follow Tina Brown on Twitter at at Tina Brown LM and visit her website at tinabrownmedia.com. Today's episode was sponsored by Credible. Credible.com is an online marketplace for student loan refinancing. Using Credible's simple platform, it takes less than two minutes to find out if you're overpaying on your student loans. You could save thousands by refinancing. All you have to do is visit Credible.com kick, answer a few questions, and right away you'll get real rates, not ranges of rates, from multiple lenders. Checking your rate will not affect your credit score, so you really have nothing to lose. The average user who refinances through Credible.com saves almost $19,000 over the life of their loan. And for a limited time, my listeners will get a $200 welcome bonus when refinancing through Credible.com slash kick. That's Credible.com slash kick. If you haven't already, be sure to subscribe to Kick-Ass News on iTunes and leave us a review. You can follow us on Facebook or on Twitter at at Kick-Ass News Pod. 
And as always, I welcome your comments, questions, and ideas at comments at kickassnews.com. I'm Ben Mathis, and thanks for listening to Kick-Ass News. Kick-Ass News is a trademark of Mathis Entertainment, Inc.